Hello and welcome to the Overland Journal Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Brady. And for this week's episode, I interview Andrew St. Pierre White at the Overland Expo. Andrew St. Pierre White has been overlanding and driving off-highway since 1993, and he is known for his incredible books on the subject and his travels around Africa and Australia. Andrew also has a very popular YouTube channel for 4X Overland. We had a wide-ranging conversation, including some great storytelling from Andrew about his adventures around the world. So please enjoy my conversation with the famous Andrew St. Pierre White. This content is brought to you by Overland Journal, our premium quality print publication. The magazine was founded in 2006 with the goal of providing independent equipment and vehicle reviews, along with the most stunning adventures and photography. We care deeply about the countries and cultures we visit, and share our experiences freely with our readers. We also have zero advertorial policy and do not accept any advertiser compensation for our reviews. By subscribing to Overland Journal, you're helping to support our employee-owned and veteran-owned publication. Your support also provides resources and funding for content like you are watching or listening to right now. You can subscribe directly on our website at overlandjournal.com. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's it's such a joy to have you. I've been a longtime fan of your work. You have traveled around the world and you've produced some of the most exceptional, inspiring and, and uh, well-performing content that we've seen in the Overland space. And we've got lots of questions that we're going to dig into, but the thing that I'm I'd like to know, because I don't know that a lot of people know it, is is where did you start from? Where where did you grow up? What was the thing that inspired okay, well, you to do this? Well, thanks for the invitation. I really do appreciate it. Uh, my backstory is quite an e- easy one to tell. Twelve years old, uh, is my father was a foreign correspondent uh, working in London, so I was born in the UK. Oh. And he was invited to go to South Africa to be their correspondent there. And being an adventurous type, he decided, well, we're going to go for a holiday, family holiday, not to your normal family holiday destination, but to the Okavango. But the Okavango then, is just, it's a wetland in the middle of the Kalahari. It's not a place where tourists go much. Mm. At the time, there were only three lodges in the entire area. Now they're probably 120. We drove in a Triumph 2000, which is a low-slung English-made saloon car. And I remember on the long gravel road that my knees were gradually getting closer to my chin as the <laughs> belly plate of the car was being dented. Sure. We arrived in the Okavango. We got on board some dugout canoes. And I was it was a cathartic moment because I actually have a recording of me, 12 years old, this little voice talking about the sunset, talking oh, about wow. the light on the water talking about the, the mirror image and the, and the shadows of the trees and the water. And I'm 12. There's something there. If I look back at it and I thought, there's the seed, there's the kernel of what yeah. I do. And that was an, an incredible place that was, is still my favorite place on the entire planet. And that was my love of the outdoors, pegged there. Several years later, my father bought uh, a Range Rover. We went back to England for a short spell, back to South Africa with a Range Rover. And the Range Rover then, I was sent in 1974, was very was unique. I mean, yeah. there were literally 11 in all of Southern Africa. Yeah. Ours was actually number 11 that was imported. And this was, of course, a four-wheel drive and very capable off-road four-wheel drive. My father knew nothing. Yeah, sure. Knew nothing. But he did know. <laughs> Enough to, well, let's put in some jerry cans because we're not going to have enough fuel. He, sure. he knew that much and some water and a tent 
and four of us packed in this Range Rover. No roof rack, no fridge, nothing. All of our food was out of a tin can. We went back to the Okavango, but this time we drove. You can't actually drive much in the Okavango, but you can drive around it. And we again experienced it in a four-wheel drive. And this was just, it was, it it changed my life. Obviously, it changed my life. So when I turned uh, 22, I could afford my first four-wheel drive, and of course. And you were still living in South Africa? Still living in South Africa, yes. I left home. I had my, I was a film editor. I was editing TV commercials, which it turned out I was quite good at. I won some awards around the world for it, even though there were South African productions, but they were entered into competitions in New York and Cannes and things like that, and I won editing awards. I was quite good at it. I loved editing. My passion out of work was expedition travel. And so I bought myself a Range Rover, of course. Of course I would. Yeah, sure. You know? And I was, of course, a, a Land Rover file. I, nothing, I wasn't interested in anything else. <laughs> it didn't matter. It had to be a, a Land Rover. I did. It's uh, definitely an affliction, I think. Uh, I can no, appreciate it. <laughs> no, it absolutely is. The, and I built up my Range Rover and and beat the living daylights out of it on some extreme expeditions um, with friends and later with Gwyn, who I then married soon after that. We, we, we got together and then I took her on an expedition and, and she absolutely loved that thing mm-hmm. as well. So we had that connection and we just started doing lots and lots of expeditions. And in 90, about 91, we actually left. Uh, we literally sold our houses and everything. We just I sold an airplane. I sold editing equipment. I just sold everything. But my Land Rover. Then mm. I was driving a Land Rover 110, uh, the predecessor to the to the Defender. Sure, I had the V8 3.5 V8, and uh, kept that. But we then spent one year in the Okavango running mm. a lodge, and during that year, I wrote the book, The Complete Guide to Four Wheel Drive in Southern Africa, mm. and that book remained on sale in South Africa in different editions for uh, 24 years nonstop from that point. Yeah, I remember. I remember seeing the first copy that I noticed of it was. I'm trying to remember the name of the four-wheel drive store that was in Johannesburg, but I went in there and I was looking for local guides on four-wheeling. And I remember looking at uh, a lot of your books that had lined up. Yes. Because that was, uh, I think, my first trip to Africa was 2010, something like that. So, Oh, really? Even even in 2010? Because I left in 2013. So 2010, yes, there would have been several books of of mine. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And maps too. I I started a mapping company, mapping business. And the idea was, Existing, map, existing maps didn't help remote travel mm. enough. They were just roadmaps and most of the tracks were missing. So I thought, okay, no, we're going to do, we're going to find areas in Southern Africa that are remote, difficult to navigate through mm-hmm. with standard maps, go out there, map them, redraw the maps from scratch with GPS coordinates. Because of course, GPS then didn't, they weren't maps. They would, they would just give you a latitude and longitude. That's right. Okay. So then you, you could basically look at a map and look at an intersection, read the Latin long, and on the GPS say, yeah, that looks like we are there, mm-hmm. you know, um, within a few seconds or two. The accuracy was about 300 meters, certainly close enough yes, for, for to, sure. to, to make sure that the intersection was the one that you thought you were at. Mm-hmm. So you used it just for reference, which is still the way I use a GPS today. I glance at it and say, yeah, I'm where I think I am, but I'll use a paper map. I can't. I can't get rid of paper maps. I oh, find- okay. they're just they're just a wonder to use. And I, I find that the advantage of them as well is that it you stay paying attention. If you focus entirely on the so on the right. GPS, people they they don't you ask them where they're at on the map if you take out a paper map. Yeah. They well, I got to get my GPS. Yeah. Well, you should probably know what if that thing stopped working? <laughs> and they do. And it's so and it's so 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 true. If you are aware all of the time of your location and the direction in which you're driving, you mm-hmm. have this mental big mental picture in your head. 
If you stare at a tiny little screen, that's all you've got in your head yeah. is a tiny little screen. And when that fails, uh, I always say when, when training, I've got, you've probably seen my overlandworkshop.com. I, mm. I have various training courses and, and one of them I talk about navigation and I say, you've got to keep your head involved mm -hmm. with your navigation and never turn on auto routing when in a remote area because the GPS cannot tell the difference between, a, between something that you can do 60 miles an hour on and another that you have to go into low range. It yeah. doesn't know the difference. Sure. And plenty of tourists around the world have gotten in trouble with that, especially in Australia. I mean, the number yes. of the number of Germans that seem to be dying on a regular basis in the outback in it's, Australia. It's quite, it's quite terrifying. It's terrifying. Yeah. yeah. The worst one was, in fact, that they found the vehicle, uh, two deceased people. One had walked away from the vehicle and the vehicle was engaged in four-wheel drive, but they hadn't been told that they needed to lock the front hubs because yeah. it was an old-fashioned type Land Cruiser with, with lockable front hubs and didn't tell them. And they yeah. were in two-wheel drive and they weren't even in particularly deep sand and it cost them their lives. Yeah. I Lack think I've heard that story. And I even remember they, that they all they did was lock the hubs and let a little air out of the tires and they drove out. That's what they did. Yeah. They literally did exactly that. Yeah. And they just and drove the car straight out. That's Yeah, it's terrifying. Yeah. yeah. So you are still in South Africa. Now, around ni 1991, things were starting to get fairly intense in Southern Africa. Is that part of the, the reason for going to the Okavanga Delta, just to kind of get out of some of that no, intensity? No, or? it was just uh, our work had just gone on top of us. It just became yeah. so we needed that sabbatical. We needed that break from that intensity. We were living in Johannesburg, very intensive city. Yes. We just needed a break. Yeah. And it was the, and it, we still, and we wrote a book. Gwen and I wrote a book 10 years later. We published it 10 years later. While we were there, we, we kept a diary of every single day. 10 years later, Gwen, who was writing fantasy novels, was really, really rather good writer then took our journal and turned it into a book. And we won an award in the UK for that book. And What's the name of that book? It's called Torn Trousers. Okay, I've and seen it. I haven't read it. Received huge acclaim. And it's funny. And it's, and it's absolutely... When we were going through the manuscript, when we were, we were laughing at ourselves, yeah. saying, you cannot make this stuff up. <laughs> but it is all... The only adaptation we did, it's true. It's absolutely true. What Gwyn did is she wove it into a story that flows really nicely. And that's sure. all she really did. There's some very, very funny stories in it, uh, and they're absolutely true. Uh, yeah. And that was uh, still now, we think, one of the greatest parts of our entire lives. We still look back at it uh, with enormous fondness. And maybe to help the listener, because so many people admire you and look up to your work, it's always nice to hear when you have those transformative points in your life. What were the things about that year that you felt was made it so special? Oh, that's, a, that's, that's an interesting question because I, I think the one thing that we decided when we came back, we said, okay, we want a family. And Akavanga is not a place where you have to bring mm -hmm. up, you can bring up a family with any kind of normality. So we went back into city life and I continued doing film editing. And then the book was published a year after we returned, the four-wheel the four drive book. It was so successful that we then did another. We then did a third, which was commissioned by a big publish, another a secondary big publishing organization. And we realized we could make a living out of this. But we made a decision. How are we going to live our lives? Mm. And there was one simple rule. None of us were going to accept that we needed to commute. We mm. were not going to spend half an hour in the morning and half an hour in the evening in a car in the traffic to commute. Yeah. So whatever we did, that was the rule. And it might seem simplistic, but everything was guided, guided around that. We wanted to take some of ourselves out of the rat race, yeah. which is what had sent us 
scurrying off to the Okavango to escape. We said, if we come back, we can't do the same again. If we do the same again, we'll get the same result. Mm. Do something different. So this is the rule. And we started a family. We, we built a house. Actually, it was not in, not in the city. It was kind of in the country, a bit of a drive. But and it worked. And I used to travel quite frequently. And we actually then then, then uh, moved down to Cape Town, beautiful place to live. Yeah, Johannesburg is, is yeah. not my favorite yeah. place. Cape Town is a wonderful place. Yeah, beautiful. So we lived in Cape Town for, oh, it must have been 12 years or so. I haven't yeah. lived recently, but <laughs> a significant amount of time. And we brought up our kids there yeah. and then used Cape Town as our base. Good four-wheel drive um, industry, which was quite small then. It's grown since mm-hmm. t- significantly. And uh, I used that as my base and then traveled all over and did some of my longest and most exciting expeditions based from Cape Town. Mm. It was uh, one publication after the other, maps, books. And of course, I got back into film using my film skills to make South Africa's very first how to drive a four-wheel drive. It's actually on the, it's actually on my channel. The whole thing is on my, on, on um, Forex Overland YouTube channel and how to drive four-wheel drive. And I'm think, tell me if I'm wrong and ask you a question that you, you, you'll be the right person to answer this question. I have never seen anybody do this. I think I might be the only one, and I Mm. might be wrong. When teaching people how to drive off-road, to talk about the balance, the weight balance, the center of gravity between Mm. the front and the back. In other words, if a front wheel, let's say front left wheel has dropped into the hole, Mm -hmm. how do you get traction on that front left wheel? Mm. The best way is to lift the rear right wheel. Yeah, to put Trans- pressure back Transferring on pressure. weight forward. Sure. As opposed to trying to stuff stuff under the front. So I talked about weight balances, mm. left, right. And I had some fantastic uh, examples of uh, we were driving a, a Discovery Mark I Discovery over some rocks, and we kept, it kept slipping out, and it kept slipping out, and we kept on doing things. And I thought, this is a fantastic teaching moment. And that's what the whole video became. I would go out. Research some trails, get into some interesting four-wheel drive situations. Hey, roll camera! This is a great teaching moment, and then sure. I would teach it. Yeah, sure. you know, and it was it was it was it was great fun. Yeah, vehicle dynamics are such a fundamental part of um, of what we do, and you really learn them quickly under the higher speed like racing conditions because you have to be constantly adjusting. Uh, Vehicle dynamics. And, and fast. Yeah. You're doing it at a high rate of very high speed, not climbing right. out of the vehicle and looking at it and then that's making right. a decision. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's those drivers, that's what they do. They're constantly if you look if you watch F one, they're all about how do we transfer weight to the front under braking to yes. get the vehicle to turn in. Yeah. And it all those same yeah. dynamics apply off road. Yeah. Just in slow motion. That's right. Thankfully. <laughs> Thankfully, yeah. Thankfully. Yeah. That's why I don't race anymore. I enjoy yeah. I enjoy going more slowly now. Okay, so, you still ride bikes a lot, though. I do, yeah, and that and yeah, weight weight balance is a lot of that, mm. and it's usually me becoming the weight balance, right. moving around on the right. bike. Yeah, I edited a book for a a bike rider who wrote South Africa's very first motorcycling book, and mm. I actually we actually published it on his behalf. We worked closely together, and I read it through, and I was actually the editor. And I thought I've got to get into motorcycling. I've just got, I just I was captivated, but I was fifty years old, yeah. and I thought, you know. And then a friend of mine <clears> tried, and he came off, and he injured himself quite badly. And then there was somebody I knew from from I think he was uh, worked for Mr. Bishy, and that actually lost his life. Also late in life, learning how to, and then going on a motorbike. And I thought, you know, it's too late. And to you, be you good. have all these people in your life. You have your children and you have your wife and uh, yeah. I, I miss, risk is okay yeah. mitigate the risk yeah. it's not bad to take risk that's just, that became okay that's a stupid risk yeah. because you're not you're not 25 you're not yeah. going to learn fast enough to keep yourself mm. safe at 50 years old on yeah. how to handle a bike 
No, that's uh, good advice, and, and I, I think you're. I think you're I right. Just, I did actually. I'll go and do something else. Yeah, and I don't. <laughs> I don't. I don't have children, and and so I think I take more risks yeah. because I. Yeah. But if I if I did have kids, I wouldn't ride a motorcycle. They need you around. Yeah. At all levels, at all yeah. ages of yeah. life. So. Yeah. Well, that's interesting to hear about the bike. I didn't know that you had even looked into it. So because you've you know been such a practitioner of the four wheel drive. So your your books come out, your videos come out, and you start to plan these longer trips. So what was your first uh, really long distance overland adventure that you did uh, that, that comes have, to mind? That would have been uh, Botswana with friends. We had two Range Rovers, both similar age. Both um, mine was a seventy one, and his was a seventy three. To Botswana, we did the classic Botswana Chobe Marimi route that everybody does. Yeah. But then, third, yeah, well, third, what is it? Third, third bridge third, and all third, that. Third yeah, sure. I actually, my dad and I went to Third Bridge in his Range Rover 974. That's Amazing. how. That was the first time we had ever we had ever been there. So, um, but then I'm my vehicle. You know, my trip. Oh, well, our trip was then in '87. I think it was '86, mm. 80, and then we did another one in '87. We circumnavigated the Okavango. And then crashed. I don't know. There's a quite a well-known story on the channel. We had a semi-head-on collision on a bush track with a Latoya Land Cruiser. Mm. Uh, it goes without saying the Land Cruiser won. Mm. The whole Range Rover's bonnet was literally ripped off its hinges. But I rebuilt the front of the Range Rover in the bush with wow. parts I had. I used to carry a case of wire and uh, epoxy putty and bolts and nuts and re- little bits of bar, um, threaded bar, nuts, you name it. Just a, sure. a, a mishmash of stuff. By the time I got that car running, no bonnet. All the bonnet was gone. Front, front bumper was, was bent back, destroyed a, real, a wheel rim. The battery had been crushed, but I was carrying two batteries, one for a winch. So mm. I used the secondary battery. Even used my, I had a, quite a heavy hammer underneath the radiator, wedged it in with wire so I could lift the radiator up and then a strutch that I removed from somewhere else in the Range Rover to make sure that the radiator didn't fall back and hit the fan because it was a steel fan. It would have just chewed a hole in the radiator. Yeah, sure. And um, we drove it a, um, thousand, a little more than 1,000 miles all the way home <laughs> and only ever actually stopped once. Amazing. The guys at the border post were looking very strangely at this car yeah. with no bonnet. Yeah. You know, and they said, what happened? I said, oh, your roads are so bad, it just fell apart. And the guy actually believed me for a moment. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't really want to tell him you had an accident. Well, actually, yeah. the, cap- the cops came and yeah. took some statements. They were very civilized, and, uh, and we explained to them. And then we just thought, okay, we're going to drive it home, and we might get stopped a few times. Let's see what happens. Yeah. And we got all the way home. And, uh, I, called, it, and I called it the Strange Rover because it had no front end. <laughs> so at some point, you, we'll switch over to vehicles for a minute because this will be a fun one. At some point, you transitioned, at least partially, from your love for Land Rovers to a love for Toyotas. What was your first Toyota or your, or I guess your first non Land Rover vehicle um, that you took I was, on trips? <laughs> I was invited to a lot of press events particularly by Toyota South Africa, mm. who had read the book and saw my publications and thought, we need to get this guy out of his Land Rover. And I loved my Defender. It was fantastic. Sure. I still love that car for different reasons that I love other cars, but it, it was fantastic and it worked very, very well for us. The marketing director came and said, um, would you like a, a long-term loan of the Land Cruiser 90? That was called the Prado. It was the yeah, second-generation sure. Prado. It was the 90. It had a uh, three-liter turbo diesel motor. And he said, would you like to, would you like to, what would you do? And uh, oh, fantastic. And I took it for a run, took it for a month and thought, this is good. <laughs> this yeah. is a good car. 
It's not going to match the, the Land Rover off-road. It easily surpasses it on-road. Mm-hmm. It uses far less fuel. It's yeah. far more comfortable. Yeah. It doesn't have the payload. But then again, my my vehicles were light. Mm. I, I never even well, I was never close to maximum payload on my on my Land Rover, even on the heaviest trips. Yeah. I was really really light. So weight wasn't an issue, and I put a rooftop tent on it and did some trips in it, and uh, Toyota was my friend, and yeah. they were very, very happy. I drowned that car. It was the first time I had actually drowned a car off-road. I had been told, drive it off-road, do your stuff. That's, that, that's the only mandate we have. Just continue doing what you're doing, take lots of pictures of our car. That's it. You can have it for a whole year. And I was driving in very, very deep water, very carefully, and I, well, I messed it up. I mean, it was my fault completely, and I, oh, idiot you know you want it. it's the kind of thing that you look at other people and say moron okay <laughs> we've all had those moments we've all yeah. had those moments and then i remember climbing out and the engel fridge that was in the back was floating <laughs> <laughs> and it blew a fuse in the engel fridge it actually continued working and you know afterwards <laughs> and then I, I i was driving with a friend of mine who was a diesel mechanic and he actually i knew what to do to clear the motor because as i as it stopped i my hands reached for the ignition and this little voice said to me, what do you know? Stop. And I kind of, why am I trying to start it? You're an idiot. Now you really are an idiot yeah. if you try and start it. Sure. So I then climbed out, full of water and everything, and we, we hauled the, the, the 90 out. This friend of mine, diesel mechanic, said, no, he showed me how to clear a motor of water. Yeah. And interestingly enough, put it in fifth gear, lift up the one of the back wheels, Okay, um, put it in, in with a closed center diff. Wrap the strap. And, strap and then rotate, yeah, sure. the, rotate the back wheel by hand. Uh-huh. But we've, uh, we've taken out all of the glow plugs. Yeah, sure. And then zoom, 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 to, to the cylinders had water in them. If I had cracked, motor would have bent. Yeah, sure. So out came all the water. <clears throat> we took out the air cleaner. We removed it completely. To let it dry and drove about a kilometer back to the camp uh, and then the next morning refitted the air filter that had dried in the sun <laughs> and uh, i thought what a great teaching moment that was yeah. i i would have done something similar but not that well mm. that, that was really smart because mm. he you know understood the mechanics and probably had done it before so there you go another no, advantage no, of the no. manual transmission <laughs> Indeed. If it had been an automatic. Oh, no, no, it was auto. Yeah. It was was a manual. It was a manual. We would have been. It would have been a lot more. We would have found another. We would have had to use a starter. You would have had to use a starter. But he was saying it's so much more gentle on the engine just to turn it and turn it and rock it. That's right. Rocket and eventually it starts turning. You can feel the motor turning, and it's gentle. It's it's mechanical sympathy. Yeah, I actually watched a, an interesting video. It was a seventy series, and they they put it up on a bottle jack. Starter had failed, and they wrapped a recovery <clears throat> strap around the wheel, so all the other wheels were on the ground, and they bunch of guys they ran yes. with the strap <clears throat> spun the wheel and yes. it started the, the motor it's yes. fantastic i've seen people do that on a c c47 the, the dakota yeah wrapping a rope around the propeller mm. boss on a dakota and like six guys one two three go and this great big radial started incredible but if you think of the gearing the boss is only what 30, it's, an, it's, a, it's a foot wide or so, maybe a bit longer, but that's the gearing of this mm. enormous propeller. And, this, and they started it. Amazing. It was fantastic. <laughs> oh, and I, there's even a really neat story of this sailor, solo sailor, and the engine, they lost the starter on the engine and he used the main sheet, all the mechanical advantage on a sailboat. So he let the, the mainsail swing with the wind 
which po- went through oh, a series that, of pulleys and started the oh, diesel brilliant. engine. That is so that fantastic. That is fantastic. I love it. Yeah, I love absolutely. it when people figure that. <laughs> Ingenuity. Figure that st- yes, exactly. And that's, I think that's one of the joys of what we do is that you're constantly solving problems. Yeah. And for some people, that's terrifying. I think that they romanticize the idea of overlanding. But when you get out there, it's literally, it's an adventure, which means things are going wrong. Yeah. You're constantly overcoming little challenges. Absolutely. Lots yeah. of little ones. Hopefully yeah. no big ones. Yeah. You know? well, and the big ones can happen too. And that's that's part of the risk of that. Oh, speaking of that, have you have you felt like that there was any any big events that have occurred, you know, like other than the accident with the, the Land Cruiser that you felt like you learned a lot from? <laughs> Uh, yes, I, I was in my, in the 90 and I was doing a trip on the place, uh, one of my favorite places called the Makarikari Salt Plans. It's a, a very, very broad, it's the second biggest salt plan in the world. It's in the middle of Botswana, middle of the Kalahari. And we had tried to get to a place called Kokonya Island. Hmm. And I'd been there once before, knew that the mud conditions could be tricky. And we decided to give it a go. And we were, we were on our own. And in retrospect, not a great idea. Anyway, dropped the tire pressures down, headed in a straight line. There was a fence line, and they hadn't finished the fence line. There were some poles, and I remember and this, the, the poles became significant later. Because the trouble is with that mud, as it clings to the tires, it actually, it literally clings to the tires. So it will get bigger and bigger and bigger. Then it's a case of saying to yourself, I wish I hadn't done this, but it's too late now because if I stop, I'm bellied. So I've got these clops of mud flying past the windscreen, thinking I shouldn't have done this. There was some tussock grass, and I thought, I'm going to stick, but if I can stick on the tussock grass, I can at least keep air underneath the vehicle and not have this vacuum problem, Sure, which worked. I got onto the tussock grass, and uh, the tussock grass held the vehicle aloft. It got stuck, but at least I didn't have this vacuum formed when a vehicle bellies. Sure. I got out, and it was incredibly hot, white surface. And I had the day before overdone it a bit with my photography and things. And I had made myself a bottle of rehydrant because I could identify a little bit of a little bit of de- a dehydration issue, mm-hmm. you know, and possibly a sunstroke. So I realized that I was in a delicate decision. So when this happened, I thought you're even more of an idiot now because you, you, you're on your own and you probably shouldn't have done this. Now you're stuck. And I said to the, my companion, I said, we're going to have one try. Because as the vehicle stopped, I shouted to him, the poles. Mm. And he knew exactly what I was talking about. Mm. We needed those poles that were about 200 meters behind us to put under the vehicle Mm. to stop it sinking. Because we knew that if it had bellied, Mm. we were finished. Yeah, sure. We ran back. We got the poles. So by the time the poles were underneath the vehicle, and actually we didn't actually need them to stop the vehicle sinking. We used them as Max, today yeah, sure. got max tracks. Yeah. No such thing at the time. We used them as traction aids, so they did help our recovery. But the running back and the running forward, the heat, my condition, I said to him, we're going to have one try. And if this doesn't work, we're building a shelter. We've got a shade net. We're going to build a shelter, and we're going to sit. We're going to sip the uh, water, and we're going to wait until we've got a full moon tonight, and we'll mm. pull it out at night. Yeah. We got it out first try. And you had a winch on board? Or you, we, we just no, used. We the- had no winch on board. We had uh, we had a, a high lift, and uh, which would have been a hell of a lot. And that's what we were going to use the high lift and push the vehicle off the, you know, lift it, sure. shift, push, and we were going to lift it up and push it onto the poles. And uh, but anyway, I won't go into the too much detail in the story. But for the fact that when we finally got out, because of course we had got some seed netting, we our, our grass net yeah. hadn't worked very well, and we'd we we were overheating, mm. not. 
massively, but we were overheating because some grass had got through it and into the into the radiator. Yeah. I learned a lot about seed nets then too. Yeah. And not you the, need those in the, Australia for sure. <laughs> yeah. And the front of the vehicle is not the most important part. Mm. It's underneath. And mm. that was the mistake we made. Mm. Most of the seeds got in from underneath, not from fra- straight on. Sure. So it was a learning moment yeah. as well. And uh, I realized that that was, you know, m- m- risk mitigation. If you're going to take a risk, think about it and what, how do you get out? If this goes pear-shaped, what are you going to do and have a plan in mind? Don't just see the wild blue yonder and say, let's go. Uh, it could be, could be a bit sticky. It's, it's, it's 103 outside. <laughs> yeah, sure. You know, and it was our last day and we had, we had less than 20 liters of water for, for the two of us. So we're also a bit low on water. You know, you've got to, you know, yeah. so that was a learning moment. Again, a really important learning moment. And that was yeah. probably in 97, 98, somewhere around there. Yeah. And then I don't remember the year, but somewhere in the early 2000s, you were looking to leave South Africa and move. I think you moved back maybe to the UK first. In 2013, yeah. I moved back to the UK, um, ma- mainly because uh, I had a television show going in South Africa for nine years. I had a, I had a series. Mm-hmm. It was becoming more and more difficult to produce that series because the broadcasters were asking more and more money for us to broadcast it. Mm. It's not as if you produce a show and then they will pay you for it. No, they will pay you to broadcast it. And it became untenable. And I spent all my time looking for sponsors. Sure. And so little time actually making creative content. And I thought, well, you know, I've got a great body of work. I could probably get some really good, significant work in the UK, which turned out to be wrong. Mm. But the UK move was was good. But in terms of my kids... The future in South Africa didn't look good, good for them. Mm. And economically, it was falling apart. The, the, the president at the time was a basket case and stealing all the money from the economy. And the country socially and economically was a, was a really difficult place to live. And I thought, I, wonder, I want something better for my kids. Moved to England in 2013 and didn't like it at all. Yeah. Didn't like it at all. Uh, I think the weather was the most thing. The weather and the number of people yeah. was... It, it got us down from living in Africa, and we did kind of say, "What on earth have we done?" Yeah. And then, because my mother is an Australian and I had Australian citizenship, I then uh, applied for uh, for um, residency for the rest of my family, for the three girls and Gwen, obviously. And uh, we were granted it um, a year and a half later. We were granted it, and uh, we moved to Australia. And Australia is fantastic. It really Absolutely. is a beautiful country and beautiful people. Fantastic. I yeah. cannot, I can't, yeah. I, yeah, yeah. Very the, po- special. the politicians are just as annoying as anywhere in the world. Yes. <laughs> like but every other the, place. But, yeah. <laughs> but as a country, as a people, as a place to be, and as a place to overland. Yeah. It's fantastic place yeah. to overland. There's so right. much of it. Huh. I mean, the, just getting to Alice Springs, you know, it's, it's a, it's an adventure. Just it is. getting there, there from, a, there from was, Brit- and where do you, where are you located in? in- per- north of Perth. Oh, Perth. North of okay. Western got Australia. it. Got it. Oh, I did a I did a wonderful trip the last time I was in in Australia. We did all off road along the Great Australian Bight, so we did the whole southern part I know that of well. the country, I and it's very remote there. I mean, yeah. incredible sand dunes, absolutely brilliant white, massive sand dunes along that coastline yeah. too. Yeah. Very cool. Very very nice. Yeah, you'll know that road because in 2020, during the height of COVID, of course, we couldn't leave. Mm. I bought this uh, this old Range Rover. And to kind of relive my old past, and sure. kind of, kind of that it was. You have your midlife crisis. <laughs> that, in effect, that was my midlife crisis. I bought an old Range Rover. I went to Melbourne. It was a 74, 75 model. It was in reasonable shape. Spent four days 
working on it sure. and then drove it unsupported all the way across Australia along that road you're talking about. But I didn't go off road. I, mm. I stayed on road. I was going to be sensible. And uh, then, of course. Isn't that I, called the Nullarbor? The Nullarbor. So you did the Nullarbor Highway, which is, yes. I don't think that that's any less dangerous no, than, very, the, very the, than, than, than the pavement or and then the off road because it's yeah. there's nobody out there. And then I, you took those, I take those side roads down to yeah. the right. Uh, you, so the great. roads go right to the cliff edge. So they I do. drove the Range Rover. And here's an interesting story. Before I bought the Range Rover, I went looking for my original one in South Africa. Okay. And somebody who's obviously nutty about Range Rovers had communicated with me and said, well, I know, I know about your car. It was scrapped, gave me a date, and I have the original builder's plate of my original Range Rover. I thought, that's fantastic. Will you sell it to me? He said, yes. And he, I think it was £100 or whatever. And I said, I bought it from him. And then on the bite, on the Nullarbor, yeah. opened the package. I had not opened the package. I'd taken it with me, but I had not opened the package. And on the Nullarbor with my new Range Rover, new old Range Rover, yeah, sure. opened the builder's plate and kind of showed it up. And there was my, there was my new Range Rover. And there was my old, <laughs> my old, builder, my old builder's plate. Oh, I love kind it. Of, kind of closed the story. Well, you've had a lot of different vehicles from, from all of that experience. What would you say is your top three? The three that you, if you, if someone was to say, and they could somehow get any one of these vehicles, what would you recommend? What would be your your top three? Uh, Land Cruiser seventy eight Troop Carrier because it's light, compact, really strong, proper forward off road four wheel drive, and being a compact van, mm. you can kind of live in and out of it. So if the weather really gets bad. You can actually, you know, make a meal or certainly get comfortable inside it or even sure. chill chill out inside yeah. of it if the weather gets bad. And the Troopy is a lovely combination. Mm. And all these cars, you, you could, they're good points and bad points. The Troopy is no exception, but it's got so many good points. Yeah. The trouble is when you buy it from the off the uh, showroom, which is becoming more and more difficult. It's a very basic car. Mm. It's very basic. And that, in a way, is nice mm. because you've taken this very basic platform and it's not nice to drive. Not, well, let's put it this way. The, the ride is awful, <laughs> yeah. but it doesn't cost very much to make the ride really quite acceptable. Sure, sure. You fix up the interior, do, do good battery systems and good hot water systems. I'm At this age, I need a good shower. Sure. Uh, many years ago, didn't worry me. Now, if I'm in the bush, I want a shower. Sure. But you can now have a good shower. Easy. Yeah. And that, so I'm I'm building in these systems to make camping and overlanding comfortable. And is that your current vehicle? Is a my 78? Current, I actually have two. Nice. I have two 78s. I've just bought one in Africa. Oh, so nice. I have my 78 V8 in Australia. And I've just, and there's a series running currently on mm -hmm. my channel. I took the risk and bought a half a million kilometer Land Cruiser troop carrier, 78 troop. This one is the 1HZ, the 4.2 yeah, so diesel simple. motor. Yeah, Very so. simple motor. But I can't. Pull the skin off a rice pudding is sure. uh, an expression other people have used, but it, it's it's very underpowered, very reliable, simple. Paul Marsh and I are now building it in yeah. Cape Town. So I went over and uh, we spent uh, seven days working on it, doing all the mechanicals. He's now doing a build for the interior. So I've got true troop carriers. So I like troop carriers. Well, and speaking of Paul Marsh, he's one of the most exceptional human beings I have ever met in my life. I mean, he is not only incredibly accomplished as an overland traveler, several Trans-Africa trips, and and he actually helped us prepare the 78 series for That's Antarctica. Right. Yes. So he, yes. he helped us get it yes. lifted and the big yeah. tires on it and everything. Extremely highly qualified individual. And in he's fact, humble and just yeah. incredibly competent. He's a great teacher because he's the co-teacher on Overland Workshop. Mm. He's the co-presenter. So we yeah. both, we both, we put, we came together and we said, we've done so much content 
teaching people. We need to f- we need to put it a place where everybody can find all of it, and and, and it's in different courses. Well, Paul was a great choice for that. Yeah, yeah he fantastic. is someone that I just genuinely admire. So yeah. I'm, oh, I'm looking forward to seeing him soon. The 78 series was your first choice, which is, I think that's an, a great one. What would be your, what would be number two? Number two is the Mercedes Galinda Wagen, yeah. but specifically the 461 series. Yeah, big difference. I, a massive, massive difference. They're not the same car. Mm-hmm. They might look similar. They're not the same. The 461 is the, I had two. I, my last one was a NATO spec. So it had the taller wheels. Mm-hmm. It had the taller springs and uh, very, very, like the Troopy, very, very basic. But it had the front and rear lockers. And there's something uncanny about the, the, the G-Wagon's ability over rough ground. Yeah. And I loved my, I'd get another one tomorrow. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't use it as an overlander because actually the Troopy's better as mm-hmm. an overlander. A little but, more space. Yeah. yeah, it's more space, more practical, but uh, the G is... Fantastic, fantastic car. I used to go. That was the car I owned the longest. Was I? I know. Over twelve years. Yes, you did. And I remember when you really enjoyed it. When you sold it, I used to sit. I used to arrive at my friend's game farm in Natal. It was a five-kilometer run from the main road down to the camp on the on the river, but it was rough track. And Mm. I would literally brace myself in the seat, take a little bit of weight off my bum, Mm -hmm. and and hammer it down that road. (laughs) And the G wagon would track. Absolutely brilliantly lightened. You couldn't do that in a troop carrier. Mm. It would be thrown all over the place. The <laughs> sure. G would just track. It was marvelous. It was yeah, really the breadth car. of capability in that vehicle mm. is quite mm. quite incredible. Mm. All right, so that's number two. What's number three? Number three is more difficult ah. because I've got in the back of my mind, you know, if I had to buy, if I had to build something, what does your heart say? What if if you had to buy one with your heart, not your head? Right now, well, yeah. I did. I bought an old two door Range Rover. That's perfect. That's, I think that's a great number three. That's just, <laughs> It's a plaything. It's nothing more than a plaything. <laughs> so that would be number three. That would definitely uh, not be number three. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, those old Range Rovers are just beautiful. It, I, I didn't know this until, until somewhat recently, but it's the only automobile that's ever been in the Louvre. Yes, it is. Because of the design, the design. of that thing was so exceptional. Yeah. And even today, it is so, such a handsome vehicle to it behold. Is. Yeah, they're, <clears throat> they're just my favorite. I just, I think the old ones are better too. I had a 95 soft dash and it was, uh, it was just at too. the start of it being so complex that it was yeah. pretty much unusable. I had the same one. I had a 96 soft dash. Pretty much unusable. And I so. didn't keep it for long because it was getting too complicated. Yeah, just too complicated yeah. for yeah. sure. If someone was to come to you new to overlanding and they, they've said, okay, I've, I've, I've just purchased a 78 series troopy, uh, what are the top three or four or five things that you would recommend that people, not so much like as a luxury, but what are the things that people need to get started? So I would always say, no matter what vehicle, I, I think it's probably more difficult to answer it uh, saying if it's a troop carrier, because the first thing you might do with a troop carrier is just make it nicer to drive by checking yeah. the suspension and putting some decent tires on it. But I, I, I like to teach the, the principle of a least flexible, most flexible. So when you just look at a vehicle and you say, okay, even before you buy it, what do I need? And make two lists, mm. most flexible and least flexible. Mm. So for example, if you're basic, yeah, simple example as possible, I have um, my partner and I have two kids. So what's going to be least flexible? I need four comfortable seats. Mm top of the least flexible list. Everything else has a place on those lists. Well, it's only two of us, but I might want to take a friend, so maybe I'll put a third seat in. Well, is that a 
really important thing for you? If it's a really important thing to put in the third seat, then put it on the top of the least flexible list. But if it's a, "Mm, I would like it, well, then it's going to come further down the list, isn't it? So that when you've built the car, you don't look at it and say, I really messed up because I forgot about the third person that I was thinking would be. How important is that third person? Mm. So you then start saying, I now know what I want because I've given this process of least flexible, most flexible some thought and I have these lists and it's okay to change them. But the principles, those things that stay at the top of least flexible in a vehicle build will stay there. Hmm. And the other things might move about a bit as you go through the build. That makes sense. And and actually you do that and you'll end up with a car that you wanted. And I think that it's, it's also so important. And we do this on the podcast all the time is just to remind people that there's a difference between needs and wants. And, and most of the time you need a lot less than you think. I mean, once you get a good set of tires and a decent recovery kit so you can get yourself unstuck and a decent little toolkit and some some basic spares yeah. and a way to communicate if you get into real bad trouble. You're pretty much ready to go. Yeah, yeah. Just and about anywhere in the world. I'm glad you mentioned tires. Actually, it's the first thing. Yeah. Tires. Just forget it. it Especially matter. a 78. The tires they come with are almost <laughs> unusable. <laughs> I drove all the way from Johannesburg down to Cape Town with these tires. <laughs> yeah. And we actually did a little off-road drive. Yeah. And uh, the Prado in front of me was actually pulling a trailer, quite a light trailer. And he was wandering in front of us, no problem at all. I couldn't get through. I, know. I had to. I had to really drive it really well to get it through just because of these terrible tires. Yeah. So uh, it was the same for us when we built the set of the E7 trucks. I took it out for some baseline testing and I thought that the vehicle was broken. It would not it would not go through the obstacle with the diff locks on it. <laughs> it was all four tires were just spinning no on gri- the on no, the, no gri- grip. No all. grip at all. Yeah, it's it's exactly. amazing actually if they sell them like that. Yeah. I know. I well I think they're just a commercial vehicle. They're just such a basic Absolutely. Functional they, commercial vehicle. Yeah, and the one we bought was obviously used by a mine as a uh, may have been an ambulance or something. I'm not uh-huh. sure, but sure. anyway, it was not loved. But it was in better condition than we thought. But yeah. it was definitely not loved. Yeah. <laughs> I know though. Africa is, and so is Australia. Those two environments are very abusive on they vehicles. Are. You know, we find in North America that our our routes are shorter, but they tend to be more technical. But the speeds are much lower. So if you drive along a corrugated road at 80 kilometers an hour for a thousand kilometers. That's an, an enormous amount of abuse on the vehicle. Whereas if you drive, you know, 10 miles of rock crawling and you're going slow and gentle, it, it seems to actually be easier yes, on the car. It is. I think so. And yeah. Australia has the most brutal corrugations I've ever found yeah. anywhere. Yeah, you could bury, you could bury <laughs> this coffee mug inside of one and not see it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's, a, it's astonishing how, yeah. how rough they can be. And then sometimes yeah. you get to the point where, you know, when you, you hit corrugations and you say, okay, I've got to find a comfortable speed here because the speed will allow, it's like planing a boat. Sure. You get the wheels to ride over the corrugations. But the trouble is sometimes to get to that speed, the car is being shaken to pieces. Absolutely. And then you get to that speed and sometimes the speed is actually too high. Yeah. You know, it might be 75, 80 kilometers an hour. Yeah. And you realize this is not the kind of track you really want to do 80 on. Mm-hmm. So then you slow down. And then the car wants to shake itself to pieces. So what do you do? 10 miles an hour yep. to, pre- to, to preserve the car. And yourself in, and in, many, in many ways. I mean, mm-hmm. and, and the, the other challenge is you air down low enough where that starts to help, but then the tires start to overheat. It's you, hot in Australia. You've got to limit the amount yeah. you let them down. You, so and you can I, only I, go so low. Yeah. And just, I always feel the tire. I just get out and I'm just, yeah. it's a habit, feel the tires. Absolutely. And, if and they get hot. And if they're warmer than a warm coffee mug, they're yeah. too hot. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about filmmaking because one of the things that I find so impressive 
about what you do is that most of the films that you've produced, these incredible adventures, you have self-produced them. You are the presenter. You are the expedition leader. You are the cameraman. You are the, the audio guy. You're the dit. You handle all of the downloading, the backups. And then you also not only edit it, but then you produce it, market it and get it out to the world. A lot of people that are listening would probably love to be able to do a better job of capturing their own stories. Um, And now that social media allows for so many people to share their own experiences, what are some pieces of advice that you would give to someone trying to self-produce? What kind of camera should they consider? How should they capture it? Um, Maybe just a couple pieces of advice because you've become a master at it. Keep the camera equipment simple. Keep it as simple as you possibly can. All of this fancy gimbal stuff. So you're taking 10 minutes to set up for a shot and by the time... You've got the shot, the sun's gone down. You know, you're shooting most of your stuff in the last two hours of the day and the first hour or so in the morning, maybe two. Try and keep it there because that's where the light is. Light is everything. Light Mm. is everything. Okay. Yeah, light then location, yeah. But in terms of storytelling, audio is everything. All my stories are led by the audio track because the audio track is the intellectual information. The video is the is the uh, stimulation, the aud- the visible stimulation. Mm. So information stimulation. Yeah, sure. And um, I run courses as well on beafilmmaker.com and I and I <laughs> I do one one it, thing that I qu- it, uh, quite don't mean like. to interrupt, but yeah. is beafilmmaker.com is that another one of your properties? Yes, okay, and you them. you have stories and information about what we're talking about now. Exactly. Oh, so if and people are, want to find are, out more, there are five courses on storytelling and filmmaking and videography and things like that. So for those that are listening, beafilmmaker.com. One one word, yes. Yeah, you'll be able to find out more about what we're talking about now. That's great. And I I presented, now actually at this this, Overland Expo in the past, I've done lessons on it, and I will say, I'm going to teach you five things, five things today, five things today that you need to know. But only you only need to remember two. And it doesn't matter which two you remember. When you walk out of here, just remember at least two of these things. Okay, I'm going to release, release, <laughs> reveal all five to you yeah. now, and they're all exactly the same. Audio is more important than video. Uh-huh. They're all exactly the same. If you remember that, you'll be a good storyteller because it's led by the audio. It's uh-huh. led by emotion. It, it's led by, yeah, not by, not by visuals. Visuals are treats. The audio is the story. Um, and you have, well, first of all, you have a British accent, so... You know, that does, does that, that help? I think it helps a lot. I think it helps a lot. <laughs> I think it helps a lot. I mean, I, I have a face for radio. At least I've got a I've got a face I, for I, radio. I, I had one. I do I do I do have a voice that projects well, but there is something about a British accent and then your enthusiasm that comes across in your film to camera. You're so excited about wherever you're at. Thirty years later, you're equally excited. And I think that, that it's infectious. It it makes it, people excited to listen to you. Here's the rule. If I'm not excited, keep the camera in its box. Ah. Well, you've got to be genuinely excited. Yeah, I sure. can't. I'm hopeless at putting on excitement. Yeah. I'm either excited or I'm not. And if I'm not interested in the place and the place is boring, well, then it's going to be boring to my viewers as well. If it's mm. boring to me, it's going to be boring to them. Mm. It's not about getting content and filling up space in time. Sure. It's about telling a story and getting people in, in, inspired. And uh, when I'm inspired, that's easy, to, it's easy as anything to inspire somebody else. Because I'm inspired. So mm. I just point the camera at myself and start rabbiting on about something or other, fill it with some nice images, and I get a, I get a good story, a reasonable story at the end of it. But you have shoots that are I come away from saying, you yeah, know, that was just absolutely brilliant. I, it was just the, this is why I do this. 
And you get other times where it was, hmm, that's, that's okay. Not all are really as good as, you know, you know they're not as good as the best. And mm. I shot something last year called The Friends Crossing the Canning, and it was the best work I've done in 10 years or mm. more. And Is that I, one of your favorite pieces that you've produced so i've crossed the i've crossed the canning stock route which is a, a route of you, you, you think about this this is a bit difficult for many people to appreciate i love this route One it's so great thousand, you've done part of it you've done the northern part of I it i did the whole thing did yeah. you do the whole thing yeah. okay so here's the here's the deal <laughs> one thousand miles yeah off road yeah and there's think only about one it. place to get fuel along the way <laughs> yeah uh that's my favorite track and of course we did it i did it in 17 it was my first outback trip in, in australia which was pretty ambitious but i took paul with me i knew i was in safe hands yeah, sure. <laughs> mechanically but we built a good vehicle just for that trip and i kept that vehicle for several years and then uh, i did it with the old range rover so the old you know, the old 40 45 year old range rover somebody said why didn't you take it on the canning as he said it i thought i want to i want to smash your head in You've now put this, how can we take this old Land Rover on that vehicle breaker? Yeah. Is this crazy? But you've sown the seed. I can't let it go. Yeah. And he was one of the chaps that actually came on the trip. I said to him, you have to come. This is all your fault. And if this goes pear-shaped, I'm going to blame you. Yeah. And uh, it was a magnificent trip. And the, the Range Rover, and the, the, here's the funny thing about that whole story. The Range Rover did give us some problems. Mm. Not too many, because mm. it's so simple. The vehicle that everybody thought, including ourselves, that would sail it, the Hilux, gave us endless problems. Oh, wow. So there's the story. So I do these gratuitous pans of the, of the Hilux, which is broken. It's got its back wheels off, and there's a brake problem. Mm. And I pan onto the Range Rover, which is sitting with its <laughs> bonnet closed, happy as a clam, and I play the music uh, Land of Hope and Glory. <laughs> no, just to stick it to Heine, who was driving the Hilux, who was getting more and more ticked off with us because we kept on giving him a hard time. But he would play it back to us. We, yeah, sure. we lost the Range Rover's lights. We had to do some night driving because we'd lost a lot of time. We, we decided to do a bit of night driving. And the Range Rover's lights, the actual switch disintegrated. It literally, the interior just melted. <laughs> It didn't melt. It just fell apart. Sure. So he was so happy when the Range Rover <laughs> broke down. And then Rob, who was the, who's the English guy that was driving the Range Rover most of the route, pointed out that if the Hilux hadn't broken down, we wouldn't have needed to have driven at night. It was a great story. Wonderful. Story. So the Canning Stock route film that you just, and is that out for people to watch now? So um, there are episodes, there are about three episodes on YouTube. Okay. Uh, okay. But the full series, the full 13-part series, is actually on uh, video on demand on on uh, Vimeo. So if you find it on the channel, you'll see links on the in the description of all the videos, okay. and then you can download the. And I promise you, it's infectious. It's it's it gets every episode is a little better than a little funnier. And I have I get a little spo- tiny little spoiler here. The last bit of shooting we did on the last day, which was the wrap up, we were. The, the, the four of us were camped somewhere. This was after we got back, a sure. month after we got back. We were talking about how great the trip was. What was your best moment? What was your best moment? What was your best moment? And the Range Rover was parked on the edge of this like little hill, little green hill, and this rainbow appeared. And I'm not <laughs> kidding. It, w- it looks like Hollywood production. This massive double-edged rainbow goes all the way over, and the Range Rover is right <laughs> in the middle. And as they were talking, I said, that's my end shot. And I actually, you can hear me saying, that's my end shot. And I grabbed the camera and I leave it running. And I just pointed at the Range Rover with this. That was our final shot of the series. How was that for serendipity? I, yeah. I mean, it was just, you know, the gods of cinema were saying, yeah, I'm going to give you this one, mate. <laughs> oh, well, so then 
what is another series that you think people would really, or one that you're most favorite? One I think of your I still, my most favorite is in, in 2010, I decided to relive my boyhood dream of, of finding the source of the Okavango because the Okavango was the source of my love of, the, of, of off-road and overland and wilderness. And I would go and find its source, but the source is in Angola. And mm. I could find no information anywhere about the source of the Okavango. I knew it was on the Cabango River in Angola, and we would go and find it. So I did a solo trip across the entire Namib Desert on my own in my 105 Land Cruiser, which was actually my other third, my third favorite vehicle. Yeah, if it's I such talked a about special it. car. Fantastic. It's the, it's the 100 body with an 80 series chassis. What a fantastic combination mm. that is. And, and the 1HZ, so it's such a simple motor. And it had motor. a 1HZ, yeah, yeah. absolutely. We then did that, and it was a 66-day expedition. And I was joined by people in Angola after I'd done my solo trip through the Namib, and they took us into Angola, which is just mind-blowing, just mm. the colors, the textures, the smell. It's just beyond anything I'd ever experienced before. And then into Botswana, and we followed the Okavango River. And the amazing thing was we followed it from its very, very source, the highest point in the valley. I took some water from that little pool and decided that I would empty it at the end of the river. Because, of course, that river never finds the sea. It finds the Okavango. Mm. But after it finds the Okavango, it spills out into the Boteti and Nabe rivers. And we felt that Boteti is the longest of those rivers. And we followed the Boteti until it ended. And it literally stopped in a riverbed. But it was moving at probably quarter mile an hour as this water was trickling. We stopped. We jumped out of the car and said, there's the end of the river. Some villagers had come down. They hadn't seen water in that river for 25 years. And they were marveling at the fact that this water has now arrived. Most of the people standing there had never, ever, they were younger than 25 years old, had never seen water in that river. So we got filming and I poured the water slightly ahead of the water advancing mm. down the river and kind of just poured it ahead and watched the two meet and kind of I made the river a tiny bit longer with this bottle of water that I'd captured. Amazing. That to me, I think that moment in overlanding, that, that one moment is a kind of culmination of my career. It was a fantastic series. It got broadcast and that series got broadcast in a lot of countries. It was, a, it was probably my best work. That and the canning that I've recently done, my best work. And what's the name of the of the series um, on the Okavango? In search of the, it's in search of the source of the Okavango. Okay. And it's also on Vimeo Video On Demand. Uh, and if great. you go into Vimeo On Demand and you type in Andrew Sinpia White, you'll probably find it. Okay. If not, you, again, YouTube, you'll find links there. So one of the things that I like to ask, it's more of a selfish question, is what are some of, you've written many books yourself, but what are your top two, three books that you have enjoyed in your life uh, on any subject? I love audiobooks. Mm. And when I'm traveling, I gobble them up. Yeah, me too. Into Thin Air, yeah, John Krakauer. It's a good one. I've listened to it about four times. I love history, but I'm quite selective on my historians. I love uh, war history. Uh, Max Hastings is a, mm. is a favorite of mine. I just finished a book called A Nemesis, which was the USA and Japan conflict of, uh, that ended in '45. And he's a very even-handed historian. You know, he's, he's English, but he doesn't keep waving the, the, the Union Jack all the time. And, and, you know, he seems to be very balanced, and I really like his, like his work. Other books, I, I, don't have any, I don't have any particularly particular favorites, but I, I, because I've collected comedy all my life, one of the best autobiographies I've ever read, Eric Idle, Always Look on the Bright Side of Life, mm. and it's not about Monty Python. <laughs> it's, um, 
And it's wonderful. It's a wonderful, wonderful. That's a and, great suggestion. Uh, and the book that I've just put down now is called Unnatural Causes. I can't remember the author's name actually, but it's basically a, a pathologist. And he, he was a, he was kind of the top pathologist in the UK, and was actually called to to as an acting British pathologist and the, after the nine one one tragedy. Mm-hmm. And so his story about dead people, yeah. but it's so well written, oh, wow. and it's absolutely captivating. What a job that is. Oh, incredible. Yeah. Well, Andrew, it has been a joy to have you on the podcast. It's so great to see you again. I think the last time that we spent time together was, I think it might have been at the Aventura and All Red, yeah, but was. Um, was. maybe slightly before that was at the Overland Expo at Mormon Lake. That's right. We got to have a conversation. I think it was All Right. Uh, it was 15, I think. Yeah, I had so my trippy. Been... I, I drove my trippy from because right. my trippy that I built in South Africa. Uh, then imported it into the UK yeah. and then actually sold it there. But before I sold it, I actually took it to Aventure. Yeah. And it was so interesting because all of the guys, because that lift, lift, that uh, camper conversion, mm-hmm. I actually designed it. So all the other guys from Tom's and sure. Extreme all came around, you know, can we take pictures? And I said, well, I don't own the design. Go for it. Make <laughs> yeah. yourself at home. And it was nice to see that they adapted quite a few of my ideas into uh, their things. Well, that's it was quite nice to see. How do people find out more about you? Let's talk about where they find you on the web, on social media. So my website is 4xoverland.com. And on there, there are several badges, um, you know, points of you know, and I, and my videos, my courses, all of the things that I do. I also am um, involved in a company called Egon. We've, we've seen uh, myself uh, teamed up with a mechatronics engineer. We're seeing shortcomings and needs in the electrical fitment parts of four-wheel drives mm. and campers and things. So we developed some products there. But that's the best place to find me is forexoverland.com. Mm-hmm. And from there, there are lots of links to all of the many things I do. And, of course, Instagram is um, forexoverland underscore com, underscore com okay. is my Instagram channel. Nice. Which And that's, yeah, that's me. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Andrew. It's a pleasure to see you. Hopefully, I'll bump into you um, on another continent soon, maybe in Africa. You never know. Well, I'm there next April. Okay. To take our Africa cruiser on its very first trip. Oh, fantastic. We're planning on Malawi and Zambia and Malawi. Oh, beautiful. Well, thank you again, Andrew. And we thank you all for listening. And we'll talk to you next time.